Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 2009 Alexander Weddell Lecture. My name is Stuart Bryan, and I'm nearing the end of my second year as chairman of the Board of Trustees of the Historical Society. Last year's Weddell Lecture, as you will, many of you will recall, was delivered by Charlie Bryan. He retired the very next day. <laughs> and he was succeeded by Paul Levingood, who came in right as we were embarked on the worst recession that this country has seen in 60 or 70 years. Paul and his staff have spent many, many hours wringing out every possible ounce of fat in the Historical Society's budget. I am here tonight to report to you that thus far we have been successful. We're down to the bone now. And, but we are going to continue to fulfill our mission of collecting, preserving, and interpreting Virginia's history for the generations of today and for future generations to come, as long as we continue to receive your support. <laughs> and I know, I can see from the looks on your faces, that that is not even a question. Of course you'll continue your support. So in advance, I thank you very much, and I'm pleased to turn the program over to Paul Levingood. Well, thank you very much, Stuart, and let me add my own welcome to all of you to the annual Alexander Weddell Trustees Lecture. And it's great to have this splendid Robbins Family Forum for our programs. I'm delighted to see so many of you here tonight, a true sellout, which is incredibly rewarding for us here on staff. If you go into our long-term exhibition upstairs, The Story of Virginia, you'll see a wall of covers from Time magazine. These are the covers that features Virginians, or people, or a horse actually, connected to Virginia, who have appeared on the front of the magazine over the years. The individual, you may be interested to learn, who appears on more Time covers than any other person is George C. Marshall. That recognition was richly deserved. General Marshall was the Army Chief of Staff and Chief Military Advisor to Franklin Roosevelt. Winston Churchill called him, quote, the organizer of victory, because he was the man who chose the team that led the U.S. Army in World War II. After the war, he became the symbol of the effort to restore a devastated Western Europe through a program that began in April 1948. The official title was the European, European Recovery Program, or ERP, but of course, everyone calls it the Marshall Plan. Well, our speaker tonight is currently writing a major new book on George Marshall, and he'll help us understand how Marshall and his team created the post-war world. Josiah Bunting III, Cy Bunting to his friends, is a man of many accomplishments, writer, educator, leader. I'm happy to say that among those achievements, I hope one of his prouder ones, has been a term as a trustee of the Virginia Historical Society. It's therefore very appropriate that he's giving this annual trustees lecture named in honor of the former chairman of our board of trustees, Ambassador Alexander Weddell. And this is an especially auspicious occasion because this year we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Virginia Historical Society's move to the boulevard. And many of you didn't know that. The VHS is nearly 180 years old, and Battle Abbey itself is nearly 100 years old but the VHS connection with this site only goes back a half century. For many years, the VHS occupied the Lee House on Franklin Street near Capitol Square, 
We acquired Battle Abbey in 1946, when Alexander Weddell was president, but didn't move our headquarters out here until 1959. That's when we built a wing on the back of Battle Abbey to accommodate our library. So we've now been on this spot for a half a century. And interestingly, the subject of tonight's lecture, George C. Marshall, died 50 years ago as well, in October 1959. Two years ago, we asked Mr. Bunting to give a noontime banner lecture, not on Marshall, but on Ulysses S. Grant, during our Lee and Grant exhibition. Many of you remember that lecture and the overflow crowd that came out to hear him, which was a testimony to his following in Virginia. And so it is, as you can see again tonight. Some of you know him as a former president of Hampton Sydney College. Others know him as Superintendent Emeritus of the Virginia Military Institute. He's now president of the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation in New York. Well, please join with me in welcoming Cy Bunting, who will speak to us on the topic, George Marshall, His Men, and the Recovery of Europe. wonderful to be here. Thank you very much, Mr. President. Thank you, Stuart. Congratulations to Leah. Is it Leah or Leah? And to Lindsay, uh, our two honorands uh, this evening. I'm very grateful to be here this evening. The vagaries of chance uh, led me to Virginia for my own education. Uh, I've had the privilege of helping administer and teach in two wonderful Virginia colleges, and as the president mentioned, I did a terms of service on the board here. David McCullough, perhaps the most popular and honored uh, historian in the country, uh, once said that this is one of the two great state historical societies in the country. The other one, I imagine, being uh, uh, Massachusetts, although he had the good sense not to mention that while he was here. <laughs> but... Uh, what you are doing, uh, you and two or three other wonderful state associations, state societies for the country, uh, is so important. Uh, if for no other reason than that most American universities and colleges seem to have lost their role, uh, their tutelary role as enthusiastic exponents of the value of history, the study of history, for American citizens not academics, but all of us who are involved in this great continuing experiment in liberty. It is so important uh, in a time in which so many colleges no longer require the study of Western history or American history that the Virginia Historical Society and the few other state uh, societies of your stature continue in this role of evangelizing. The lamps of popular history have been lit and they are burning brightly in Richmond. I need to recall to your attention at the beginning uh, three eminent historians, one of them a Virginian, one a New England man, and the third uh, an Englishman, Douglas Southall Freeman, Henry Steele Commager, and Paul Johnson. All these historians are known to you, certainly Commager, uh, to anyone who was in a good college between roughly 1948 and 1975 as one of two uh, authors of the famous text, The Growth of the American Republic, Henry Steele Commager. Secondly, Paul Johnson, an English historian, still alive, still prolific, 
uh, author of a wonderful history of the United States, the kind of history uh, only a foreigner who loves this country could produce, uh, a, a work of great uh, encompassing grandeur, wonderful narrative sweep, and filled with the kinds of oddments uh, in our history which are much more obvious to a foreigner than to ourselves. And of course, Dr. Freeman, author of what I believe remain the great lives of George Washington and Robert E. Lee, and of course, of Lee's lieutenants. Before retiring this evening, if you have a copy of Lee's lieutenants, take down volume three and read the last two or three pages of that book. This is the way history should be written, history of great people involved in great affairs set down by a master of narrative prose. And read in particular the farewell order, General Lee's farewell order, April 10th, 1865, to the Army of Northern Virginia. The draft of that order, the early draft, we believe, was crafted by Colonel Charles Marshall, General Lee's military secretary, uh, a collateral ancestor of George Marshall, American Secretary of State, as President Leavengood has told us, in the most productive, the most successful, indeed seminal period in the making and execution of American foreign policy in the entire length of our history. Before that, head of the American Army, an army of citizen soldiers, the core of which we salute today as the greatest generation. Listen to these numbers just for a moment. An army of 8.3 millions in 1945, when we were a country of 135 million. To remind you of the magnitude of this force, recall that today's army comprises just under 500,000 soldiers, and we are now a country of 305 millions. As a matter of scale, between 1941 and 1945, just over 16 millions of Americans served in uniform during the greatest war in our experience. Now, Dr. Freeman had a particular interest in George Marshall, and he admired him. And in a moment or two, I will describe an exchange of letters uh, between Dr. Freeman and General Marshall and the young Richmond man who had a hand uh, in bringing the letter from Dr. Freeman to General Marshall's attention. Because the Marshall side of the exchange with Dr. Freeman casts a brighter and more searching beam on Marshall's character, what this man was like, than anything else I know him to have written. As for Paul Johnson, the last of these historians, he wrote that Marshall's generation of American leaders, soldiers, senators, presidents, cabinet officers, a generation born between 1880 and 1900, the generation that led us through the Second World War and through that glorious period of post-war achievement with Marshall at its head, was the ablest generation of public servants, according to Johnson, in our national history since the generation of the founders. For qualities of mind and character in which he prominently includes Churchill's great virtue, magnanimity. A prosopography, we might call it, the study of groups of people engaged in a common enterprise or joined together in some other important way which implicates all of them for good or for ill. 
If you're between the ages of 55 and 75, roughly speaking, the generation we are talking about right now is the generation of your grandparents, those who led us through the Second World War and the years of the post-war period. Men whose names are familiar to you who fall in the early part of this period include Franklin Roosevelt, Douglas MacArthur, Harry Truman, George Marshall, that generation. In 1961, Dr. Commager, then teaching at Amherst, wrote a wonderful essay entitled 18th Century Leadership in America and Today. He asked a question that all of us ask, and he provided a searching answer to the question that most of us do not provide. How do we account for the cohort of civic leaders, many of whom soldiered bravely and successfully in the war for America, which made a revolution, created a new nation, the most puissant and successful, and we believe the best in the history of the world, whose collaboration after the revolution gave us the Constitution. It has been frequently remarked that it seems to have been reserved to the people of this country to decide by their conduct and their example the important question whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. You may remember uh, or you may recall that uh, paragraph from the Federalist Papers, written by Hamilton in this case, Federalist Number 1. Well, Commager's question is usually asked at the time of the inauguration of a new president, a new administration, or contrary-wise, at a time of national trial. The other night I told some friends in Lexington that I had a distinct recollection in 1974 during the summer of Watergate of hearing a man say, what do you think President Theodore Roosevelt would have made of the Watergate scandal? His meaning was plain. President Roosevelt and his stalwarts would never have countenanced such conduct. Why don't we have people like that running things anymore? Well, Commager cast no particular aspersions on the new administration in 1961, nor was he the first to ask this enduring question. And like us, he was at pains to discourage two persistent tendencies in our own responses to this question. The tendency first to romanticize, to use the shorthand term, to romanticize the leaders in their works of several generations past, or contrarywise, to infect them with the cynic's malady, to cut them down to fit our own sour perspective on the possibility of gifted political leadership for any democracy. Commager's 1750 generation, that is the birth date of that generation, has names which resonate powerfully in Virginia. He leagued them in their talent as a group with the leaders of the Athens of Pericles, the, Elizabeth, or the England of Elizabeth and the Italy of the Renaissance, prodigal in this fluorescence of human genius. And among the colonies he placed at the summit was what he called the little frontier colony of Virginia. Washington, Madison, Jefferson, Patrick Henry, George Mason, a list that we could prolong for a half an hour. Accounting for all the common explanations, Commager fastened on how the founding generation in particular, 
how its leaders were raised, how they were educated, who taught them, what they read, what their parents expected of them, the sense of duty and obligation that was inculcated them, and in particular, their, their feeling that they must occupy places always of honor and danger when duty commanded them to do so. Much of their reading in school was in classical literature, and most of that reading was done in literature not in translation, and much of it was done also in political biography. Read frankly for purposes of what we today call emulation. History is no longer taught in schools and colleges with an idea that students will emulate the heroes of antiquity, but that's how we taught our young people in the 18th century. You get into your bones, in Winston Churchill's phrase, the qualities of character that form, that inflect, that determine the characters of people that you admire. Great teachers, but those in earlier generation was taught to call great men. Most of these young people were raised in a denominated Christian faith. They knew their Bibles. They had studied and pondered the great questions of political philosophy in the classics and in the writing of the important 17th and 18th century theorists, Harrington, Montesquieu, Adam Smith, Locke, Hume, and so on. When the last signer of the Declaration, Charles Carroll of Maryland, died in 1832, an icy thrill went through the country. We have lost palpable touch with the great generation of the founders. At dead center of Paul Johnson's 1880 generation was Marshall. The men he gathered around him who undertook two mighty tasks in his lifetime. First, to build an army for a democracy that believed in the late 1930s it had no need for an army. And to rebuild a continent after a terrible war in which that army had served and fought for a terrible year a continent that that war had almost destroyed. In 1953, a breathless reporter in North Carolina came to the Marshall home in Pinehurst and instantly asked Marshall, who had just been notified he had been awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace, what he believed to have been his most important contribution to world peace. Marshall said without hesitation, what I did in 1940 to prepare the American people to fight a war I plainly saw was coming, but for which we were completely unprepared. We're dealing here, if you look at the American public uh, in the late 1930s, and really all the way through uh, the spring of 1940, which suffered what today we call cognitive dissonance. They knew what was coming, but they were determined not to acknowledge the fact that they knew it. Years later, the famous commentator on management and leadership, Peter Drucker, called Marshall flatly, without qualification, the greatest picker of talent in American history. He became head of the army September 1st, 1939, the day that Germany invaded Poland, and three years later, uh, became uh, three years later, preparing the initial American invasion in the West, in North Africa undertook and oversaw the formation of our first offensive. The country at this time had not been to war for 23 years, and then only for a year in France, and at the end of a long period of peace with a very small army. We took the field, so to speak, at the very beginning, 
with an array of talent that included Douglas MacArthur, George Marshall, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Omar Bradley, Mark Clark, Walter Beadlesmith, George S. Patton. That's how we started. Marshall was the agent of transmission in making those selections. He had found, tested, promoted, and assigned everyone except MacArthur, a famous rival of his, but whom he admired and sustained all through the war. Dr. Freeman observed in Marshall the same qualities of character and mind that he saw in General Lee. And he wrote Marshall in 1942 with a good biographer's, a good historian's request, trusting to a young Richmond friend who had worked for General Marshall for a few months at that time, a son of Richmond, Frank McCarthy, the liver of about the most interesting life I have ever heard of. Some of you may know uh, or may, may remember Frank McCarthy. Uh, his last assignment, as most of you know, was as the producer of the Oscar-winning and still very great movie, Patton. Uh, you might think to yourself the next time you see uh, Patton, if you see it again, that most of the dialogue in the movie uh, among the principals is taken verbatim uh, from eyewitness accounts or from diaries or letters. Uh, it is a very accurate portrayal of General Patton and those around him. Well, McCarthy had worked uh, for Dr. Freeman for a year as a police reporter on the Richmond News Leader, 1935. Uh, several years later, in 1940, he happened to be present at commencement exercises in Charlottesville in May of that year. The speaker uh, substituting for the British ambassador was a historian called John Wheeler Bennett. And Bennett gave a stirring address in the middle of which, reading from a note he had been handed at the lectern, he said to the audience, France has fallen. Unbelievably dramatic pronouncement to make. McCarthy and several other members of the audience instantly gave up their <laughs> civilian pursuits to join up. He volunteered for active service, taking up the reserve commission he had earned at VMI. Well, two years passed. He is now Major McCarthy, and he receives this communication from Dr. Freeman with the earnest request that he make sure that General Marshall sees it. This is what Freeman wrote Marshall. Every day as I prepare a succinct little memorandum for you on the basis of General Lee's experience, I ask that you particularly uh, take, take heed uh, to the importance of keeping memoranda, keeping notes, keeping information, perhaps even making entries in a journal that will be helpful. It will be helpful to future historians who are looking at these tremendous days. Freeman, of course, had in mind as he wrote this letter the difficulty in doing justice to General Lee uh, who was notoriously self-effacing and didn't keep diaries or journals uh, either. Marshall wrote Freeman a remarkable response, and for those who may wonder what Marshall was like, his response comes as close as anything I know. Quote, My policy has been not to do anything like this. In the first place, doing this tends to cultivate a state of mind that is unduly concerned with possible investigations rather than a complete concentration on the business of victory. Further, it continually introduces the factor of one's own reputation, the future appreciation of one's decisions, 
And this leads, I feel, to self-deception or hesitations in reaching decisions. I realize that in the future, I will probably be embarrassed by the lack of factual evidence regarding this or that phase of the war as it was influenced from my office. If I in any way propagated such thoughts, however, they would inevitably affect the clarity and the logic of my daily approach to a changing situation and my commitment to victory. In other words, you focus utterly on the business at hand, what you conceive to be your duty. In the phrase of David Reisman, the great Harvard sociologist, inner directedness, the assumption and execution of responsibility without calculation of risk or reward. This exchange casts a sharp beam, an illuminating beam on the martial character. He was, uh, as our president has mentioned earlier, and as uh, Forrest Pogue, his official biographer, termed him, a species of Virginian, though he was born in Pennsylvania of parents who had moved there from Kentucky, but whose provenance was in the northern neck, which links Marshall, in my mind, with General Washington and General Lee, whom, by character, most people agree he favors. Marshall was a child of Victorian America and of the culture of Victorian America, small-town, innocent America, born almost 20 years before the Spanish-American War, a striving second son of a family of three surviving children, a descendant of the great Justice John Marshall, son of a father who had fought himself briefly as a Kentucky militiaman in the war between the states. It is important to remember that if you were born around 1880 or 1885, your teachers and most of your parents' male friends were veterans of the war, particularly in the South, and many of them were still young. If you had been born, for example, in 1846, and you survived Chancellorsville and Gettysburg, two climactic battles only eight weeks apart, and you were a healthy male, you could expect to live until 1910 or 1920. As a teacher, with a George Marshall or a Harry Truman in your class in 1890, you were still only 44 years old. That is to say, the impress of the Civil War was a very powerful one for sons of South and North in the final federal campaign in 1864-65 under U.S. Grant was a principal strategic determinant of how we fought World War II in Europe. If you sometimes wonder about the connections between those two climactic struggles, the Civil War and the Second World War, uh, recall to yourself that the senior American general killed in World War I, I beg your pardon, in World War II, was Simon Bolivar Buckner, a lieutenant general, killed in the last two days of fighting on Okinawa in 1945. He was the son of the Kentuckian who fought against Grant in 1862. Not the grandson, not the grandnephew, but the son. That's how close we were. Uh, if, you have a, 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 if you have a zest for those kinds of anecdotes, here's another one. Uh, general Hap Arnold in Wichita... Uh, in 1944, decorating civilian workers in a B-29 factory was introduced to one of the older women who was working there, working on these planes, James Longstreet's widow. Wow. James, 
Many of these people lived in uh, 1910, 1915, 1920, and some of them married young women. <laughs> a boy growing into adolescence in the late 19th century, like Truman or Marshall, was raised in strict and regular circumstances. For example, read to every night by his parents, and usually from the works of people like James Fenimore Cooper or Walter Scott or historical romance writers such as G.A. Henty. Marshall, this is the interesting thing about him. You may know children like this already. I hope, hope you're blessed with flocks of them. Marshall, at an early age, resolved to be a certain kind of person, not to have, not to attain, so much as to live according to a standard of conduct self-imposed. He became an artifact of his own conscious manufacture at the earliest age possible. He went to VMI where he was a sterling military success, less successful as a scholar. By temperament, rather reserved, self-contained, aloof. Commissioned in 1902 at the age of 22, he served at the end of the Philippine insurrection uh, as a second lieutenant. He was, in effect, the governor of a state about the size of Connecticut called Mindoro. He was there by himself, no possibility of promotion, decoration, recognition. Once every eight weeks, a ship would drop by and drop off letters from the young woman to whom he had been married for about three months. But this is the school, is it not, of character. In World War I, he came to attention, came to the attention of the great hero of that time, John Pershing, and earned a reputation as a gifted staff officer. I have to tell you, if you will indulge me, a quick anecdote about the Pershing-Marshall relationship. Marshall had been in France for four or five months. Uh, there was only one division, one American division, then in training in France. But Pershing was in Paris uh, with his staff, and the only place he could visit, and he liked to go out and visit the troops, uh, was a place called Gondrecourt, where the uh, first division trained. They put on a demonstration for him, an attack on a trench line, and after it was over, Pershing brought together all of the officers of the division, including General Seibert, the commander, and said to them, this was a disgraceful performance. I'm ashamed that the army is so ill-trained. What have you been doing with yourselves? In every aspect of your training, as demonstrated this afternoon, you have failed. Stared at everybody. He was a very formidable man. And then turned to walk towards his limousine. Just a minute, General Pershing. The great man turns around. Who are you? Major Marshall. <laughs> Can imagine the commanding general watching this. And for the next three or four minutes, Marshall, pouring out a torrent of exculpatory facts and factors, told Pershing essentially what the difficulties were that they were dealing with and what they were doing to overcome them, and that these had been reflected in the demonstration most of which was put on by soldiers who had marched 30 miles and had not been to bed the night before. Pershing turned to walk towards his limousine. Marshall laid a hand on the great man's forearm. I'm not finished. <laughs> More of the same. 
But Marshall had a way, he was a quiet, reserved person, but when he talked like that, he communicated an earnestness that transcended uh, any, uh, any uh, what should we say, disrespect. Uh, General Pershing concluded by saying, we have our problems at headquarters too, you must appreciate that, Major. Got into his limousine, drove off, Instantly, Marshall was surrounded by all of his brother officers, including General Seibert. Uh, you will surely be sent away from the, from the division staff. <laughs> you will be put in the front lines, that, that kind of thing. Of course, we, we, which Marshall later said, this is all I wanted. I wanted to get away from the staff. Uh, two weeks later, General Pershing came down on another one of his visits, and the first person he asked for was Major Marshall. Thereafter, he always relied on Marshall to give him the straight dope about the success of the division. And six months before the end of the war, in a terrible phase of the, of the First World War, he promoted Marshall to colonel and made him chief of operations of the 1st U.S. Army. I have to add something to that uh, anecdote. For some reason, if you walk through Barnes & Noble on a Saturday morning, you go to the military history shelves, everybody is standing in front of the Civil War Lee, Lincoln, Longstreet, Grant, or the Second World War. We somehow uh, have forgotten the role, the importance, the tragedy uh, of World War I. But to give you a sense of the horror of that war, in the last six weeks, we lost 26,000 killed and 100,000 wounded. That was a very powerful, very potent, very tragic experience for the Army. Well, in 1939, uh, as most of you probably know, President Roosevelt reached across uh, 33 senior generals <coughs> and made uh, George Marshall chief of staff or head of the Army. <coughs> the uh, person who probably had the most to do with that promotion was uh, a very interesting character, well to the left of most people uh, on CNBC or whatever that network is that has Rachel Maddow. Do you know that? that uh, um, <laughs> But Hopkins had a great eye for talent, and he appears to have said to President uh, Roosevelt, this is the kind of person you need, with the inflection on the word you. Uh, Roosevelt uh, was a fine president during wartime, but his habits of work, his organizational habits, those kinds of things, uh, were not particularly helpful in organizing the war effort. This is a man who will tell you exactly what he thinks, and what he thinks is what the country needs. Marshall. At the end of the war, Henry Stimson, Secretary of War in 1945, said to Marshall in front of a group of officers, I have never seen such a task performed by a single hand. Stimson said this to Marshall. Stimson, one of the great forgotten heroes of the war, at the age of 72, a Republican, was appointed Secretary of War by President Roosevelt. It was a second tour of duty as Secretary of War, having fulfilled the same office under President Taft. Marshall, for his part, was only embarrassed by such praise. He discouraged all honors. He told McCarthy that he would be fired. McCarthy was now lieutenant commander, I beg your pardon, a lieutenant colonel, uh, if Marshall was decorated or given honorary degrees. He would refuse to write memoirs steadfastly much later, I have already been adequately compensated by my country. 
Somebody told me that 19 members of the Bush administration are hard at work on their memoirs. <laughs> this is George Marshall, who probably had quite a story to tell, refusing to do that. He had done so many things so well and so quietly, and among these things, his largest contribution was, as I said, an uncanny uncanny uh, uh, penchant, an uncanny ability to locate talent. In 1943, as early as 1943, Marshall began to consider the post-war obligations of the Army and of the country. And in his final address in uniform in 1945, he devoted as much time to a consideration of the plight of those who had borne the battle and the countries they represented as to the achievements of the American GIs in the war. This is to say that years before President Truman asked him to be Secretary of State, he had already found and developed for himself the strongest possible foundation for such work. He knew what the war cost. He had made certain President Roosevelt saw casualty lists every week. And he told his Nobel Prize uh, audience in 1953, that there was no irony, so far as he was concerned, in a military man uh, being honored with a peace prize. He knew the costs of war. President Truman, as some people may remember, or some people may have read and remember, President Truman suffered what he would call a calamitous electoral defeat in November 1946. The Democrats had held the House and Senate for almost 20 years. Now they were swept out with a large Republican majority in the House of Representatives and a substantial majority in the U.S. Senate. This is a time of the onset of the Cold War, a faltering economy, post-war disillusion, and of course the fact that Harry Truman was not Franklin Roosevelt. These are the kinds of things that drove the election in that year. Truman's response, among other things, was a canny and shrewd selection. He made General George Marshall Secretary of State, or rather he nominated Marshall to be Secretary of State. The new Republican chairman of the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, a Michigan Republican who would later become one of the, one of the heroes of the plan for European recovery, Arthur Vandenberg, put Marshall's nomination through his committee, and through the full Senate in less than four hours. A unanimous vote. There was, there was no question. In one of Marshall's first acts on arriving in Washington after a year's unhappy service in trying to mediate the war in China between Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai-shek was to tell journalists on the platform at Union Station where they had gathered to meet him that he would never, under any circumstances, allow himself to be a candidate for any public elected office. And he reinforced that by saying, usually when people say things like that, they're not taken serious, seriously. I am always to be taken seriously. And you might remember that in 1947, Truman as president, the vice presidency was vacant. And until the law was amended late in that year, the Secretary of State, not the Speaker of the House of Representatives, succeeded to the presidency. Well, Marshall had arrived at his office, arrived at the great office of Secretary of State, in one of those interstices of history in which multiple events, changes, cross-currents, and historically-minded citizens and leaders 
from all over the world had converged. Now, he had himself, in a sense, missed a very important year, 1946. I wonder if there's anyone in this room who missed 1968. Was there anyone who happened to be in Vietnam during that year and, and missed, missed the whole shooting match? 1968 was a fraught year. It was the year, most of you can remember, of, of political assassinations, the Pueblo affair, the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, uh, the conventions, rioting in the streets, hippies, all of that. Uh, if you were out of the country during that whole year, you essentially came back to a United States very different from what you had left. Marshall had the same experience. He had missed 1946 entirely. Like so many Americans who had served alongside Soviet forces and who had witnessed the suffering of the Russian people, he had missed most of what had happened in 1946 so far as the change in attitude of the American government and ultimately of the American people towards what they now regarded no longer as a recalcitrant ally, but a very difficult prospective enemy. So Marshall comes back as Secretary of State, still something of a pragmatist. In fact, uh, Averill Harriman said Marshall was probably the last of the important figures of that period to lose the sense that perhaps we could, in fact, come to some kind of a reasonable agreement with the Soviets. He was soon dis disabused of that notion. He was not being soft-hearted. He had no illusions about Soviet duplicity, but his instincts as a pragmatist guided his thinking. Surely we can find some useful common ground. Marshall's arrival at the State Department in his first months uh, in office remind me uh, significantly of Ronald Reagan's first three or four months in the White House in 1981. The introduction of order, simplicity, and confidence into a huge and unwieldy organization which seems to have lost its way. His undersecretary, Dean Acheson, regarded his coming, quote, as an act of God. For Dean Acheson, who considered himself very close to the deity, this is... <laughs> This is, this is high praise indeed. <laughs> President Roosevelt had ignored the State Department. Secretary Jimmy Burns was bored by its administrative requirements and its unsupple way of dealing with issues. The word around Washington at that time, this is a very bad pun, I, I want to prepare you for it. The department fiddles while Burns roams. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Burns, you might remember, uh, had been the prospective vice presidential nominee in 1944, and Senator Truman was to have nominated him. Uh, FDR finally changed his mind and decided on Truman as a better choice. So now here was Harry Truman from Missouri, vice president and then president of the United States, and here was Jimmy Burns in a subordinate position. With Marshall and with a demonstrated gift for organization, these issues were attended to uh, swiftly and efficiently. In Atchison, he had a deputy extraordinarily apt at carrying out assignments of large importance. Marshall would serve 23 months as Secretary of State, a period of time within which most of the architecture of American foreign policy, the consequences of which we are still living with, uh, were formed. The Truman Doctrine, the Marshall Plan, the forming and fusing of the Western Alliance 
in the making of the North Atlantic Treaty and NATO. Atchison's liability, we might say, uh, in passing, because history has been fairly hard on him, was much less substantive than stylistic. He was one of those people, you may know people like this, who no matter how hard he tried, and he did not try very hard, was unable to uh, disguise condescension. Not a good, uh, not a good quality uh, if you are in his line of work when dealing with the legislature. Marshall's men composed a cohort whose names remain familiar to us, much less familiar to our children and grandchildren, but indulge again the briefest recital of the names of the most prominent among them, this cohort, from the far end of this generation of 1880 to, two, to, 1880 to 1900. George Kennan, Robert A. Lovett, Averill Harriman, Charles Bolin, John J. McCloy, Dean Acheson, and laborers in vineyard, vineyards adjoining, such as James Forrestal, Arthur Vandenberg, Paul Hoffman, Lucius Clay, all Confederate in some way in the making of the plan for European recovery. I should point out here also the importance of the political complexion of the two parties at this time. In those days, there were liberal Republicans and there were conservative Democrats. That is to say, the parties themselves were internally far more polyglot than they are today. The obvious consequence, of course, considering the mighty mission that they would undertake together, uh, was a far more, uh, what should I say, a far more, if not efficient, a far more productive synergy between the two parties and between men who were members of both of those parties. I don't know how many people here uh, remember the state of the Republican Party, for example, at this period, but you're thinking, you're dealing uh, essentially uh, with people like Leverett uh, Saltonstall and Arthur Vandenberg and Jacob Javits, people of that stamp. And of course, in the Roosevelt coalition during World War II, if you think of Roosevelt as a war president, uh, especially early in the war, his strongest support and reliable support came from Southern conservative Democrats. In the creation of a fresh, vigorous, and altogether revolutionary enterprise in our national history, an acknowledged commitment to the world's affairs, Europe's especially, in time of peace. For Europe, not relief, not revival, but full recovery. And for reasons of justice and of humanity, as well as those of our own national practical interest. At the core of their achievement, was the plan that President Truman insisted be named for General Marshall, an act that Winston Churchill later called the most unsorted act in history. A suggestion, a collaboration, a proposal, finally a policy in which, moreover, was introduced, and this is important, to American citizens and to the legislature as a labor that would demand serious sacrifice on their part, which would probably result in an increase in taxation and whose end was a goal and certainly not a promised achievement. A great characteristic of the Truman presidency and of Marshall at all times was an enumeration at the beginning of the difficulties and the sacrifices. This is going to be very difficult. A goal, not a promised achievement. And less than three years after a war to which America had given in blood and treasure, it would now be asked to do so much more. Think about these numbers just for a second. In palpable terms, in 2009 dollars, roughly 579 billions in today's money 
as the equivalent share of four years of America's gross national product from 1948 to 1951. Marshall had asked citizens to face up to the vast responsibilities which history has clear, clearly placed upon our country. Marshall's men included names which together form the subject of an important book, now 30 years old, I might even say a seminal book called The Wise Men. We are drawn to this generation of Marshall's men for several reasons. First, and interestingly, in this, in this time and age, because most were beneficiaries by birth and circumstance of superb opportunities. They were beautifully educated at famous boarding schools and famous universities and colleges. Many of them had visited Europe as young people. For the most part, they had attained success in worldly pursuits, which would have permitted their biographers or people who watched them to call them simply in comfortable circumstances. And yet all of them seemed to have imbibed, each in his own way, a profound commitment to public service, to whom the most has been given, the most ought to be demanded. Most of them gave and were very slow uh, to seek for praise or to count the cost. Victory has many fathers. Defeat is always an orphan, variously attributed to many people, that statement. The Marshall Plan had a broad paternity. Talk of the need for a comprehensive program for the recovery of Europe studied many conversations, columns, editorials, political conferences, and a significant element from the beginning, let us not disguise the fact, was America's own self-interest. An international economy depended on international commerce. The national autarkies of the 20s and 30s had helped lead to the disaster that produced people like Hitler. Another significant element gaining momentum in 1946 and 1947 was the realization that the Soviets would surely exploit for their own purposes a prostrate Germany, of which they occupied the large eastern zone, unless the Allies, mainly the United States, did what they could to revive Western Europe, including the German zones in the West. The devastation wrought by the war was beyond description. Flying to Moscow in the summer of 1945 from Berlin at low level, Eisenhower recorded in his journal that he did not see a single structure left standing for over a thousand miles of his trip. Cities like Hamburg, Cologne, Dresden, Berlin, not to mention London, were blackened shells. The capital cities of Europe, with few exceptions, had suffered calamities. Think for a moment of this fact. In metropolitan London, 3.4 million homes were destroyed. This is destruction we can scarcely imagine. And so much of the damage, as Marshall quickly described, was the kind of damage that did not show up physically. The United States had made loans and grants of various kinds, but they were really palliative in their effects. The real program, the catalyst, was a dramatic meeting in early April 1947. If you're looking for something that catalyzes all of these uh, all of these attempts to come to grips with this problem that catalyzes a solution, here it is. Uh, at approximately 10.30 at night, driving through the sullen night in Moscow, Marshall, with Charles Bolin, having concluded six, year, six weeks, probably felt like six years, 
Six weeks of negotiation with the Soviets over the fate of Germany, particularly having to do with the reparations, make what, it, what in effect is to be a courtesy call on Stalin in the Kremlin. Nothing had been accomplished up till that point. Russian demands for reparations, Russian refusal to negotiate seriously on any significant element of a German peace treaty had, gathered, had guaranteed another failure. Marshall's call on Stalin, therefore, became something in the nature of a serious effort to reach understanding, any understanding, that might promote the work of rehabilitation. Europe was doomed to fall into a similar cycle leading to war. Like Churchill, uh, like Truman, like FDR, Marshall had come to know Stalin at the major Allied conferences during the war, beginning at Tehran at the end of 1943. Stalin was one of the two or three greatest monsters in the history of the human race. <laughs> nice way to be remembered. One of the two or three greatest monsters of the human race in human history, which literally he was. As an ally and colleague in the war, however, against an even more dangerous monster at the time, he had proved in a military way to be an efficient partner and colleague, always carrying through on his promises. He liked Marshall. He had a habit when he talked to Marshall, Stalin was five feet six, of putting his hands on Marshall's shoulders and looking up at him. This is how they had their dialogue, Marshall said. It gave him sort of a peculiar feeling to be talking to the dictator in this way. But Stalin had the qualities, uh, to use a good Yiddish word, of a mensch. He was a kind of a man's man at these conferences, and so long as he was doing the kinds of things that were useful to the alliance, Roosevelt and Churchill, and ultimately Truman and Marshall, were prepared, prepared to deal with him. One of the things that Marshall noticed about Stalin and remembered that night in Moscow two years later was that he was quick in his responses. He was shrewd, he was deadly in earnest about the need to act quickly and to deliver on his promises. But what he heard that night, what catalyzed, it seems to me, what was brought into being a year later as the Marshall Plan, was something entirely different. Marshall asked for immediate cooperation. The Allies had labored together before. If they did not do so now, European tragedy would become an invariable calamity. Stalin responded quietly by saying that the situation was worrisome, but nothing more than that. Patience would yield agreement and compromise. That was all. They must be patient. This from a man of decision and firm action persuaded Marshall of the necessity for United States intervention of some kind. And all the way home in their plane, Marshall and his two colleagues, Bolin and Carter, talked about what they had heard from Stalin and what it portended. Two nights later in Washington, this is in late April 1947, on a national radio hookup, he spoke to the country. The patient is sinking while the doctors deliberate, was his statement. He assembled State Department colleagues, among them Kennan, Atchison, and later on Harriman and Bolin, and demanded a rapid diagnosis and the bare early lineaments of the means and costs of some form of American intervention. On June 5, 1947, Marshall delivered the only commencement address in American history of any consequence. 
In fact, Acheson had warned him uh, not to say anything of any significance by way of a commencement address, since they were a trial to be endured by a rest of audience, many of whom were not sober. <laughs> but Marshall, having received an honorary degree from Dr. Conant, and I will read you the one-sentence citation in a moment, gave a speech, a quiet 11-and-a-half-minute talk in the nature of a suggestion, the significance of which was scarcely realized by most people in the audience. It is interesting that sometimes events of enormous historical import uh, are never recognized as such by people who are actually living through them. But Marshall, uh, in a terse 12-minute address, basically said, we need to be helpful to Europe. The initiative must come from Europe. Within the limits of our purse, we will attempt to be helpful with advice and money, and whatever we can do, but the initiative must come from them. It must be in the nature, not of a palliative, but of a deliberate, uh, carefully thought out plan, which will result only uh, in the rehabilitation and full revival, and ultimately the recovery uh, of Europe. This he said uh, briefly and much more eloquently than I, than I have uh, to this audience. Uh, it now appears that doing it this way uh, was a means of introducing it very quietly. It was in the nature, he said, of a suggestion. It was picked up only by one newspaper or the next day, the New York Times. It was the third lead, but very, very quickly it gathered momentum, largely through the agency of two, two journalists in Washington who had reported it immediately to London and through one of the great British foreign ministers, Bevan, who said, we must act on this at once. Marshall, as I said, was brief. His speech was quiet, functional, and practical. The honorary degree recipients, uh, if you, if you uh, and I'll mention three or four of them, if, if, because I think they're kind of amusing what they must have talked about, T.S. Eliot, George Marshall, J. Robert Oppenheimer. <laughs> what have you been writing lately? <laughs> I tried to read The Wasteland. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't understand it. <laughs> Everybody here knows who T.S. Eliot was. Indulge me in one 30-second anecdote. Uh, during the war in, in London, uh, the king and queen, uh, showing that they were prepared to endure the same trials of Londoners, remained in Buckingham Palace. And once a week, they would put on a large lunch and invite citizens, friends, usually a celebrity or two, after one of these lunches, the queen said to King George VI, uh, a, uh, a very admirable king uh, who was somewhat involved on the periphery uh, of, of, of all of this, uh, said to him, uh, I had a most unusual man sitting next to me. I couldn't tell if he was a, an American or an Englishman. Uh, he kept talking about uh, a desert. He kept saying he, he wanted to have a, a desert, something about a desert. This is T.S. Eliot <laughs> describing the, waste, the wasteland. That was the... Uh... If we treasure the stories of the rise from humble circumstances of so many patriot leaders in American history, men such as Eisenhower, Bradley, Chester Nimitz, the great naval commander, Ernest King, we must take a last look at Marshall's cohort, the men we know today simply 
as the leaders of American foreign policy and the making of Amer American foreign policy in the post-war period. They furnish us another lesson and another example. Again, if you were born in fortunate circumstances, advantaged by birth, wealth, education, these men together affirmed their obligation was to serve, to serve in uniform as young citizens and to go in places of danger, in government in its time of trial, when by training and understanding you felt some call to serve. It is an inescapable lament, and this is history, it seems to me, instructing us in the present. An inescapable lament. The academic nurseries and crucibles of privilege and talent of an earlier time, most of them, most of them, now do not so much as even permit the establishment of ROTC units on their campuses to their great shame. And in a culture that worships celebrity, the conscious aggrandizement of great wealth and possessions, in which political partisanship is kindled and brought to white heat by hundreds of commentators who celebrate ideological difference rather than rationality and a common heritage. We need people li like this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Be glad to answer uh, any questions. Yes, sir. I've, I've been taught. I'm I'm 81 years of age, so I remember a lot of these things. Uh, that one of the things that's not recognized that Marshall did that really, uh, I will say, contributed to our victory was he redlined, my words, some of the old generals like Ben Yuhu Lear mm -hmm. and brought up people like that young colonel from Kansas. Mm -hmm. from the, is that true, sir? Marshall was a merciless uh, redliner. Uh, as soon as he became chief of staff, uh, he eliminated about 25% of the active duty uh, colonels uh, in the Army. Uh, and he did that and uh, made a lot of enemies doing that. But at the same time, people who, uh, who uh, particularly in Congress, who went to bat for these people who were being retired, Marshall would remind them, you must be thinking about these tens of thousands of 19-year-old kids these people are going to be leading, not these people who are being separated from the service. Uh, at the same time, he uh, produced legislation working with his friend Senator Burns of South Carolina, which made it possible uh, to promote to temporary, uh, uh, to temporary grade during wartime the likes of people whose names you have just mentioned. Uh, one of the great things about Marshall uh, when he selected officers uh, for promotion, he was interested in what they were good at, and he was inclined uh, not to pay much attention to things that they were not good at. Uh, his first three important uh, appointments to general officer rank were George Patton, Terry Allen, and Joseph Stilwell. 
Uh, these are people that Henry Stimson called good war men. So what if they lost a tank at Fort Benning in 1928? So he, he had a real genius uh, for that. But yes, he was uh, ruthless uh, at firing people when it needed to be done. Uh, probably the most famous example uh, was that of Lieutenant General Hugh Drum. Uh, General Drum was commander of the 1st U.S. Army. Uh, Stimson and Marshall brought him down to Washington and said to him, we think it would make sense for you to take on the assignment in China. We are going to wind up with a large presence in China during the war. This would be, uh, it seems to us, a very important duty. Uh, one thing Marshall hated was any self-aggrandizement. And Drum said to the Secretary of War and General Marshall, uh, it seems to me it might be a waste of the kind of talent and responsibility and experience I could bring to bear uh, that I be shanghaied, pardon the expression, uh, in an unimportant theater of war. He no doubt saw himself as the Pershing of the Second World War. Uh, that was the end of General Drum. <laughs> yeah. Camp Drum in upstate New York. I don't know if you know that. that that's how he's re uh, remembered. Marshall's own experience, uh, incidentally, uh, was in the First World War, uh, and he was struck by how important in combat, despite things like character, integrity, and brains, how important, uh, how important it was uh, to be relatively young and vigorous and fit uh, to do that kind of thing. Excuse me, sir. I wonder if you would comment on uh, uh, two events, General Marshall's uh, view. One was the recognition of the state of Israel, and the second was his view of the use of atomic power. His, his views on the use of atomic power? Yes. yes. Uh, those are two uh, extraordinarily important uh, questions, uh, the answers to which remain quite controversial. Marshall uh, opposed uh, President Truman's recognition of the state of Israel, uh, he did so, I need scarcely say, out of no motive of anti-Semitism, uh, as has sometimes been hinted, but together with almost all of the Department of Defense and the Department of State because of worries uh, of what this might portend for the rest of the American military, the American position in the Middle East. Uh, Marshall wrote somewhere that at that time we had between one and two divisions deployable. We believed that if Israel were to be recognized, uh, that Israel would have a very small chance uh, of surviving without massive infusions of American aid, American military, naval, uh, financial aid, which simply at that time was not uh, available. Uh, he had a fraught meeting that you probably know about uh, in the White House with President Truman, Clark Clifford, uh, Robert A. Lovett, several other people. And at the end, their disagreement was so heated uh, that Marshall said to President Truman, uh, if you were to make this decision and I were a voting man, I would not uh, vote for you uh, in the next election. Truman, to his great credit, Truman revered Marshall, said, why don't we, uh, why don't we adjourn this meeting and we'll see if we can get together in a couple of days. Uh, and two or three days later, as you all know, he recognized uh, the state of uh, Israel. Marshall's counsel at the time was, under, was certainly understandable, but history, it seems to me, uh, has shown him to have been on the wrong side of that issue. Uh, as far as the use of the atomic weapons uh, uh, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, the decision was made 
almost in the spirit uh, uh, of the papal index, that is to say, nihil obstat. I am not going to stop the publication of this book. We are not going to stop the use of this weapon, which has now been prepared and which we believe will administer such an overwhelming shock to the Japanese empire that this will be necessary for them to make a decision to surrender. Uh, people who contradict that decision, who do not agree, sometimes confuse defeat and surrender. Uh, the Japanese empire, and particularly metropolitan Japan, uh, had suffered uh, calamitous damage, loss of life, all of the major cities. They showed no real signs uh, of wanting to surrender. The episodes uh, on Iwo Jima, and particularly Okinawa, the refusal of the Japanese soldiers to surrender any under any circumstances, convinced uh, the interim committee that the only way uh, surrender could be reliably induced would be by the use uh, of these terrible weapons. Uh, the first bomb was dropped on Hiroshima uh, on August 6th, and the idea of the second bomb being dropped three days later was simply to put in the minds of the Japanese Imperial War Cabinet that we may have more of them. Uh, war is uh, unspeakably cruel, uh, but that is how that decision was reached. Uh, I refer all of you to Paul Fussell's essay, Thank God for the Atom Bomb, uh, kind of a raffish title for a deadly serious topic, but he makes the point that if you were a 21-year-old second lieutenant en route from Germany across the Pacific to invade Kyushu, uh, you applauded that decision. One last very short question. You mentioned Washington, Lee, and Marshall together, all yeah. of which strike me as having a sort of crusty dignity. Yes. Other authors have complained that Washington and Lee were both hard men to get at, to get to know. Have you yeah. discovered this to be so with General Marshall? Marshall uh, worked consciously to make himself hard to get at and get to know. However, I figured out how to get to know him. <laughs> I think I have, uh, and I, I mean this very seriously, through his correspondence, his letters, particularly uh, between 1915 and 1940, before General Marshall became uh, General Marshall. Uh, his letters to colleagues, and remember, the Army was very small in the 20s and 30s. Marshall knew every lieutenant colonel, colonel, and general in the Army. They all knew each other. Um, to give you an idea of their sense of vocation, when the West Point class of 1915 reassembled for its 25th anniversary, the 25th reunion at West Point in 1940, only five people had left the Army. So they all knew each other, and they corresponded in very affectionate terms at great length uh, in, in letters. Uh, you also have to look at uh, out-of-the-way uh, impressions of Marshall from people like Marshall. Uh, Marshall liked uh, the company of ladies in the same way that General Lee did. Uh, Queen Frederica of Greece, of all people, uh, idolized Marshall. Uh, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, uh, young woman such as uh, Rose Page Wilson, who was the goddaughter of the Marshalls. His relationship, those kinds of relationships, were, were uh, extremely important, and that was essentially the way to, uh, to, to sort of get into his soul, uh, as it were. Uh, he was a very, very conscious uh, steward uh, of his own uh, privacy. 
Fools' faces seen in public places. He just did not like that. And this has led many people, it seems to me, wrongfully to impute a great rivalry between Marshall and MacArthur. Marshall does not do rivalry. Marshall leaned over backwards, it seems to me, during almost all of the Second World War when he was chief of staff of the Army uh, to accommodate General MacArthur. Uh, When MacArthur was ordered by President uh, Roosevelt to leave the Philippines for Australia, Marshall wrote the Medal of Honor Citation for MacArthur. Uh, They came to grief much later on during Korea, uh, but that's uh, another subject in another, another lecture. 